Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Virago Podcast a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Hi, this is Lenny Goodings, and I'm with Katie Hickman, uh, who has written this wonderful book, She Merchants, Buccaneers, and Gentlewomen, British Women in India. And we're just about to publish it in Virago. I'm really thrilled. Um, welcome, Katie. Welcome to the Virago podcast. Thank you very much. So I thought it would be a good place to start is to tell us the sort of scope of this book, because especially the starting point, the years that you, you are uncovering. It's un- unusual, new material, really, isn't it? I really like to think that it is new material. The scope is pretty big. It's 300 years of history of British women in India. Um, about which quite a lot has been written, but mostly about Victorian and Edwardian times. So what makes this book really different is that it's about the much earlier centuries. It goes right back to the very, very first decades of the 17th century, when the East India Company, who was the body in control of all Britons who went to India at that time, was founded. And I was amazed to discover how early women actually travelled out on these ships. And the first ones that I found travelled in 1617, which is really, really early, considering that the East India Company was founded in 1600. So that was you know, less than two decades after its foundation. And they are almost, almost unknown, these women. Uh, one was an Armenian Christian lady, and she took with her, when she returned to Agra in, in the Mughal-controlled part of India where she was from, she'd married an English sea captain. She took two female attendants with her, Mrs. Hudson and Mrs. Steele. And um, they took this incredible leap into the unknown. These were long, long voyages and very dangerous voyages as well. They had no idea what was going to happen to them. They could be attacked by pirates, they could have been shipwrecked, they could have all died of disease. And um, they made it all the way to India. And one of them secretly married a man, one of her fellow passengers, a very enterprising merchant called uh, Richard Steele. And she secretly married him, completely against East India Company regulations. And... um, 
practically had a baby on board this boat. <laughs> so all the, all the female things. All the female things, so, but exactly. the, the, There are two sort of prejudice hanging around um, this subject, British women in India. One is that the, the women just went off to the fishing fleets, as they called them, didn't they? So off women from Britain who just sh- shot over there to try and find a man. And then the other sort of... Um, possibly a, a mix of prejudice and truth, is that these women were very prejudiced themselves, very racist. Can you... What, so you had these two things, didn't you, that you had to... You yes, know, that's, these two that's things. That's our myth, isn't to, it? It is our myth. And it's not so much that I am saying that that didn't happen, because it did happen, mm. uh, but more to, you know, tease out a wider picture and I think the you know British women are widely widely believed to have been you know the the main cause of a lot of prejudice, particularly when it came to uh, English men marrying Indian women. You know, one of the things I used to hear all the time when I told people that I was writing this book was, "Oh, wasn't it the women you know who put a stop to it, it, it British you know British men marrying Indian women and therefore you know put a stop to a rather wonderful multicultural uh, world and of course if you dig a bit deeper that wasn't the case at all and I think it was just pure misogyny actually I think women were easy women are always an easy target they're less likely to speak up for themselves their written or spoken records are you know not not much known about and so I wanted to find out if that was true. And of course, it is true in parts, but there was there, there are awful lot of cases which are exactly co- you know contrary contrary to that. And they didn't only go to find husbands; they went for a whole number of other reasons, which is was one of the fascinating things about doing the research. Um, for example, Mrs. Hudson, one of these women on the sixteen seventeen voyage took with her £100, which was an enormous amount of money, about £24,000 in today's money, to invest. So she was a trader. She was one of the she merchants of the of the title of the book. And she duly um, bought, I, I think, a whole load of uh, cotton goods and came back and made, made a fortune. So they went for adventures and they went to do things. It wasn't just marrying men marrying men and having families although of course that were you know that was that was always something that they would have wanted but it was only part of what they wanted sometimes the women were asked to come too weren't they there were there was a time when they didn't have enough women there yes british absolutely, women to marry absolutely they did yes so the east india company having forbidden women to go very absolutely in black and white uh, right from the very beginning and there are some great letters, imploring letters from English sea captains, you know, imploring the East India Company to let them take their wives and they wouldn't let them. But then things changed when the British acquired Bombay, which they did through, uh, which was part of the diary of the uh, Portuguese princess Catherine Braganza, who married Charles II after the restoration. And the Bombay, which was an archipelago in those days, one of us series of little islands, um, passed to the British Crown, who then leased it to the East India Company. And so they had the beginnings of a colony. It wasn't just trading, you know, trading posts that they had. They had their own territory, own sovereign territory, which they needed to populate. So all of a sudden women became an, you know, a necessity rather than a rather than just a nuisance. 
And so they advertised for these women. This was one of the great surprises that I found in my researches, looking through all the records of the East India Company. They decided to advertise. And first of all, they advertised for couples to go out, a man and a woman, which would have included their maid servants. So there were always some single women who would have gone under those under that uh, system. But then when not enough women applied, they decided they needed some single women. And so they asked the governors of uh, an institution called Christ Hospital, which still exists actually as a school, which was founded to look after orphans. And they advertised for single women between the ages of 12 and 30, which is a sort of heartbreaking heartbreaking statistic because uh, it's not known how many of these young women went to India but it's certain that at least some of them did and some of them would have been as young as 12 years old so quite what happened to them on these tremendously long voyages and Bombay was notoriously unhealthy Uh, two monsoons were supposed to be the average life expectancy so these children what we would think of as children made this incredibly dangerous voyage and Bombay prospered against all the odds. The the voyages alone are the um, extraordinary stories, aren't they? Yes, they just are. Tell us a little bit about you know, what the passage was like. Well, for a start, for women, it was sort of doubly, doubly difficult because women were considered to be unlucky. Mm. And so, you know, captains and um, sea, you know, seafaring men didn't welcome women very much anyway on board boats. And so very often they were forced to just stay in the lowest bowels of these tiny little ships. I mean, the boat that left in 1617 was about the size of three double-decker buses. And this was a voyage of eight months and very often more. You know, the round trip to the Indies was anything between two and three years. They were very, very long voyages in these tiny little vessels and uh, there's one description, one of my my ladies, a woman called Eliza Fay in the 18th century, who made three separate trips to Calcutta and back, which was extraordinary in itself. And she described how one of the captains was such a misogynist and a woman hater that she and her friend, she had a companion and a number of people who she went with, the women, I think he only allowed them on deck five times in the course of this long journey, mm-hmm. which to us is... I, it's torture. Very, very <laughs> difficult to imagine what what that really would have been like. But they did, and they survived. And they survived it. And in Eliza Fay's case, you know, went on to do it multiple times. So they were very resilient. And do, what do you think they achieved? I mean, how the the women? I mean, we've got such a range. I'm sorry, it's yes. a broad question. But what do you think? Um, what is would their legacy be? Their positive legacy. I think their positive legacy. Was it? I mean, I'm. I was very struck all throughout the writing and the researching of this book by how many different things they did. You know, it was as you said at the beginning. It was always been assumed that women really just went to find husbands, but that was. You know, hus- husbands died. Husbands died. Husbands deserted. Uh, husbands were, you know, shed for all sorts of different reasons, or husbands were just not particularly good breadwinners. So. Women did what they've always done forever and a day, which is they just got on with it and they found, you know, they they found things to do. So that so the range of 
businesses that they went into is is surprisingly big. So they were these she merchants. There are records saying that there were surprising numbers of women who traded always. Uh, but they did a fascinating variety of different things. They opened boarding houses. They had uh, millinery businesses, so hat-making businesses, dress-making businesses. They ran uh, confectioner shops, you know, shops of all kinds they ran. They, in later days, um, because Indian society was so segregated, there was a very high demand in much later days for female doctors, female nurses, uh, any kind of health, you know, sort of healthcare workers, and obviously uh, missionaries as well. Whatever you might, however we might judge missionaries today, at the time they were very influential in teaching, in forming schools for for young women, for Indian women, uh, particularly for Indian women who observed purdah. And so they they just you know they got on with it and. Um, they were remarkable. They and do you, do you feel a sort of pride as a British woman yourself? I do. Yes, I do, actually. I do. I mean, I'm sort of not... I'm, I was surprised and not surprised by what I found because, because, of course, women have always buckled down and done things. And the things that they've done tend to go unrecorded and un, certainly unremunerated quite often. Um, so, yes, I am. I'm, I think what I'm most proud of is their extraordinary resilience. You know, this was such an alien place, uh, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries, less so, you know, in the 19th centuries and beyond because of the greater numbers that were going there. But the 17th and 18th century women really didn't have much idea what they were going to find. And it was such a culture shock when they got there. I mean, there are all the obvious things like the terrible heat, which... You know, the heat could kill could kill you. If you went out in the sun not properly dressed, the heat would kill you. There were diseases that they didn't even have names for. So there were fluxes and poxes and fevers, which we now know of as typhoid and malaria and all those things, but they had no idea what they were. They had no idea how to treat them how to treat them. You know, one of the um you know, sovereign cure for a fever was a bottle or more of claret. <laughs> so there are these descriptions of these poor women having forced, you know, being forcibly having to drink a whole bottle of claret. Um, and of course, you know, sometimes they survived it in spite of rather than, you know, rather than because of it. Um, and then, uh, you know, so it was just so alien and yet they just got on with it and... Um, but and you yourself have travelled a lot and lived in all different countries. I know you. Yes. You, were, you I know you are British, but you're brought yes. up in different places. Yes, weren't that's you? right. My so father, do you feel a sort of kinship? Yes, to this I think kind of I thing? do. I think I do. My father was a diplomat, so I grew up all, all over, not not in India, sadly, but in 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 all all over. And yes, I do. And I I you know some of the stories that they tell are things that I or some of the experiences that they had the emotional experiences are things that I really recognise. Like, for example, um, it's an absolutely common theme, whether it's 17th century or you know 21st century, waiting for the post to come, mm-hmm. waiting for letters. And that's something I really remember from my childhood. Um, and, of course, in the 17th and 18th centuries, a letter could take a couple of years before you, before you, you got, the, you know, got the reply. 
and then separation the separation of parents from their children that's another thing I really relate to I was sent to boarding school age 10 which when I went you know was 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 a walk in the park compared to what these children had to put up with and also I saw my parents fairly fairly regularly but the done thing because it was such an unhealthy place for children particularly you know children were sent home age seven and mostly they never saw their parents again for at least 10 years when they were 17 18 they would be considered old enough they would take the return voyage to India but by that stage their parents were total strangers Mm. and so all those emotional bonds had just been cut Mm. which really is almost sadder in my view than children being carried off by sickness and disease I think that's a was a terrible thing and I I that's not what happened to me but I um did think about my own experiences when you know living somewhere foreign living somewhere foreign and also being a foreigner being in a in a having to adapt to a different culture which I always loved personally I found that a wonderful thing to do but that experience of being not at home being in somebody else's country somebody having to adapt somebody else's um mores and customs climate all those things but I, you know, so I I sort of felt myself gunning for them. Mm. I don't think I could have written the book if I wasn't gunning for mm. them or if I'd found that they were all poisonous. You know, <laughs> no, no, poisonous we, we were trying to abandon the project. <laughs> but they weren't. They were not at all. They were, they were incredibly resilient and hardworking and adaptable. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And the one thing that they did have to endure, or some of the women obviously in the later part of the, the book, is the uprisings. Yes, the uprisings, what the British used to call the mutiny, mm-hmm. uh, 1857, so mid, right slap in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, they were a series of uprisings, mostly but not entirely confined to the Indian army. The Indian army was, of course, a British army, but it, the soldiers, the soldiery came from uh, warrior, you know, warrior castes of Indians. And they rose up and slaughtered the British in in a few places, in particular Lucknow and what we call Cornpur, is now called Kanpur in uh, in India. And in Lucknow, 
they withstood a siege of about nine months. And so there were women and children in there. And a lot of them wrote, a lot of women wrote descriptions of what happened. I think it was the first time that women, British women and children were involved in warfare of that kind. And they were under siege in the residency in Lucknow. And there are these extraordinary photographs of what it looked like afterwards, this huge building. I mean, basically just a, uh, you know, a lump of rubble. And they died. I mean, most of them didn't die with bullet wounds, but they died of malnutrition. I mean, they died of awful diseases, cholera epidemics and smallpox epidemics, and not enough to eat. A lot of the children, I think, probably died just purely from starvation. And then in Cornwall, uh, they were 70-odd women and 100, I think 124 children were just massacred with, with swords. Uh, and the accounts that have been left of those things are truly horrifying. I have to say, the British, you know, then really took revenge on the Indians and we were just as responsible for, you know, they're, 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 nobody held the moral high ground in these uh, in, in these episodes. But the women and children really, really suffered, really suffered and died in large numbers. It is the way of the war, isn't it, I think? It is the way of the war. But they were particularly caught up in it. You know, until then, I, the battles had happened on battlefields mm. And there were camp followers, but they were able to sort of, you know, to keep to one side. But this was the first time that women and children had been absolutely at the heart, at the heart of warfare. And it left such an enormous scar. I mean, we've we've forgotten. Well, I, not, I mean, there's nothing within living memory now, obviously, but it took several generations for it stopped being a national trauma for the British, most of whom couldn't really believe that the Indians, their Indians, the you know, the men who they knew and loved often, could possibly have done that to them. And um, you hear again and again in these records, oh, our men won't uh, won't do this, but of course they did. Mm. Um, and so you know, we the, we the British paid the price for the things that we'd done, which was to take over their country, which we shouldn't have done. So. What um, I want to ask you your final, the final question, which is, which, um, which women <laughs> do you, um, not, I'm not even going to say which one do you relate to, but um, which ones do you sort of hold a lasting fondness for? Okay, well, I have a special place for those first three women Mrs. Towson, who was the Armenian, Mrs. Hudson and Mrs. Steele, just because I think it really was like accepting a voyage into outer space. They had no idea what they were going to find, whether they would ever come back. I think it was an incredible act of bravery and and, and adventuring. You know, people say women went to find husbands. Well, you wouldn't have gone to India in 1617 to find a husband. You just wouldn't. Um, and then I, and then one of my, particular favourites is Eliza Fay. Eliza Fay, the lady who made these three separate journeys, because the diaries that she left are so wonderful. And she was a sort of, you know, middle class woman. Her husband was an ad her husband who then ditched her was a was a which is why she had to start her millinery business to survive, um, was an advocate in the in the in the law courts. 
but she wrote these marvellous letters and she was just a tiny bit vulgar and just a tiny bit out of her depth in Calcutta society. So she was desperately trying to keep up with the Joneses and wear the white clothes and say the right things and behave according to the etiquette of the place because by that stage there was a whole British society that had sort of you know, invented itself really in in Calcutta, similar to but not exactly the same as society back in England, which is another very interesting um, thing. Uh, and uh, and she's just so terribly human in her responses. And also, she had such a dreadful time. Her first trip that she did, she went the overland route, so across the desert was just as dangerous, if not more so, than the sea journey. But then when she finally arrived in India, after this hugely long journey, she was instantly taken captive by the by the troops of the ruler of Mysore, a man called Haider Ali, who was at war with the British at that time, and then finally lost out and the British pinched all his land, as usual. Um, but she was taken into captivity and kept hostage for about three months. And throughout writing these extraordinary, you know, keeping an account of what happened. And she tried many times to escape with her husband, dressed as a French seaman. So she got, she managed to find these clothes, French seaman's clothes, which she describes in great detail, and uh, which all, all failed about three or four times. She tried that, all of which failed. And she did finally make it to Calcutta. But they're particularly lively. She's just a very human, because she's she writes you feel that she writes as she speaks and there's no filter she's not sophisticated enough to put any much filter on so what you what she writes about has a really really authentic ring to it and she's just hugely good fun to be with so those are my favorites yeah i'm not surprised i think Mm. it's a great book thank you so much and thank you for coming on the virago podcast it's been a pleasure thank you Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and also leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'd also love you to be in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our website, virago.co.uk. Tune in next month for another installment of Books, Feminism, and Conversation from Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.